Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. Here with me is Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Today, our guest is Dr. Daryl Bach. Dr. Bach is Senior Researcher of New Testament Studies and Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's the author or editor of over 40 books, including the recent volume, Jesus, Skepticism, and the Problem of History. Dr. Bach, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure to be with you. Yes, thank you very much, Daryl, for coming on our podcast. Um, great to have such a seasoned podcast pro uh, <laughs> on the program. You're kind enough to have me on one or two of your podcasts. Nice to be able to uh, return the favor. Now, well, well, you know, it's a quid pro quo. I don't know how good that is, but anyway. <laughs> well, not really. But uh, uh, one of the things that uh, Daryl, you've been recognized for for a long time, is is your contribution to the field of historical Jesus research, uh, among many other things. But uh, uh, I think your most recent offering in this regard is the book you co-edited with uh, with uh, your colleague with Ed. Komoshevsky, uh, Jesus, Skepticism, and the Problem of History, with the subtitle Criteria and Context in the Study of Christian Origins, published by Zondervan uh, last year. Uh, love for you to tell our listeners what the underlying burden for this volume was, since you've done other similar projects before, and what you feel like you know, the book has contributed to the discussion? Well, um, we were responding to a book that was written uh, several years ago called The Demise of the Criterion Authenticity, which, although we thought the book made several good and important points about the imperfections that are involved in the way historical Jesus studies gets done, particularly with the criteria, we were left with the question, all right, you throw out the criteria, what do you have left? On what basis can you have a conversation with someone who's coming from a different place than you are on the historical Jesus front? And uh, and we were, we were concerned that what we were left with wasn't enough to have that conversation. So we thought, we'll gather together an array of scholars, we'll let them assess the status of things. In some cases, we'll let them produce some examples and we'll see if we can walk in and try to articulate what the status of historical Jesus studies is on the one hand and what to do, what to do with the criteria on another. It kind of reminds me of that song in The Sound of Music. What do you do with a problem like Maria? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, um, you know, what do you do with a problem like the criteria, which everyone recognizes is not perfect. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, if you take it away, the question is, well, what are you actually left with? And the answer to that question wasn't clear, so we wanted to explore it. Yeah, and again, you know, looking through the table of contents, of course, N.T. Wright wrote the foreword, and and uh, you definitely have a stellar cast of, of, of scholars like Janine Brown, and of course your colleague uh, Dan Wallace, uh, Craig Plomberg, and and um, uh, Craig Evans, uh, Mike Lacona, Mike Bird, and so forth. Craig Keener, uh, even the, the you know, Larry Hurtado, Scott McKnight, Nick Perrin. So that's uh, uh, obviously uh, can't really think of anybody that, that you left out there in terms of all the leading 
uh, scholars. Yeah, it makes writing reviews picky because <laughs> we kind of picked up on everybody. So, uh, right. but no, the goal was to was to write the base book, and then uh, Hurtado McKnight and Perrin were put in the position of of assessing the volume as a whole, and then we didn't write a rebuttal. We just wanted uh-huh. we actually wanted to inject the conversation on the topic through the book and hopefully um, create some some feedback. We even <laughs> Before we even got to the publication of the book, there was even some exchanges on Facebook with some of the people who were responsible for the demise book. And so in some cases, we accomplished our goal before we even released our goal. Right, right. Definitely. I mean, there's so many facets to that conversation. I, you know, personally looking through the book, I particularly enjoyed uh, the the chapter that Craig Blomberg and Darlene Seal contributed uh, entitled The Historical Jesus in Recent Evangelical Scholarship. And of course, uh, Craig is, Craig Bomber is known for his, his incredible, uh, you know, grasp of, of, of current literature and recent literature. And so for someone like myself, and, you know, it's, it's increasingly difficult to even stay on top of all that's, that's written on, on this subject. So I thought that chapter alone is just so helpful as an orientation for, for anybody who, likes to, you know, stay up to date, get up to date. Uh, of course, uh, uh, Blomberg and Seal uh, prominently cite your work. I want our readers to be aware of as well that you co-edited with, with Robert Webb uh, called uh, Key Events in the Life of the Historical Jesus, uh, published in uh, 2009. I remember actually being at the SPL session where you and, and Bob, uh, I think, uh, were part of a panel that you moderated when the book was originally published. And uh, it's interesting that uh, I think Blomberg and Seal feel like that book has maybe not quite been given its due. Uh, you know, they feel like it's very, maybe the most important book and they feel like, you know, they want to just bring it back to the forefront of the discussion. Um, yeah, well, um, yeah, I, I think that's um, to some degree true. We, um, you know, I remember that SBL forum too because um, Tom Wright was in the audience and, and we were going back and forth the whole time with a variety of people that, you know, they had a panel of people from a variety of backgrounds as well. And, and uh, Tom came up and joked with me afterwards that uh, if you had asked him before the day if he thought he would be uh, hearing a panel and the person he most agree with is a person from Dallas Theological Seminary, <laughs> he, he he would have gone, there's no way, and yet that's what happened. So yeah. and so we, you know, it we we've tried to walk into this space and try and say, you know, the, the charge that we were dealt with in that book, while it's an evangelical book, of course they're going to speak possibly about authenticity issues and that kind of thing. To which my response at the session was you go through that book and you show me any rationale that shows that we are applying evangelical presuppositions as opposed to using the kinds of arguments that anyone used in a historical Jesus discussion. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, because that was actually part of the goal. Part of the goal was to show you could take historical Jesus standards that are universally applied in the conversation, apply it to 12 mm-hmm. key events in the life of Jesus that make up a pretty good template of what he was about argue for the authenticity of each of those pieces. And when you're all done, you've got a pretty good outline about what Jesus was about, defended 
on historical uh, Jesus critical lines. And none of the reviews that did come out actually engaged us at that level. Mm. Um, and uh, so that was actually a little bit disappointing yeah. to see uh, because the rationale that we used in the book, making the points that we were making, had little or nothing to do with, you know, specific kinds of unique evangelical arguments. The closest you can get to that, of course, is the worldview uh, view or supposition that says God is at work in the creation and miracles mm-hmm. are something that can happen. but. Right. Beyond that, everything else was was using the standard way you'd assess historical document and historical credibility. And that's what we've been about. And then the more recent volume, which, of course, also deals with the theme of skepticism, mm-hmm. um, is making the same kind of case. Yeah. Yeah. Which events, by the way, maybe for our listeners, you know, who uh, may want to pick up the book, the key events in the life of historical Jesus, did uh, cover maybe? Well, let's see if I can do the 12 events or themes off the top of my head. That's a good question. Um, The first one has to do with the ministry of John the Baptist and introducing Jesus. Uh, Second one has to do with Jesus' association with sinners. The third has to do with the area of exorcisms. Uh, The fourth had to do with the Sabbath. The fifth had to do with Jesus' association with tax collectors and sinners. The sixth had to do with uh, the meeting at Caesarea Philippi and the confession of Peter. Then uh, those six events were outside the last week, and everything else is in the last week. So Mm -hmm. that's the triumphal entry, uh, the temple cleansing slash prediction of destruction, Mm -hmm. uh, the Last Supper, the examination of Jesus before the Jewish leadership, the examination of Jesus before Pilate, and the crucifixion. Those were treated together, Mm -hmm. and then the resurrection. Yes, yes. And again, like you said, uh, if anything, the reviewers may not have really even understood what they're trying to do or maybe have been biased because of, you know, the being biased against evangelical Christians thinking you would just kind of operate deductively. But but you are genuinely trying to be inductive and using the very same criteria that others are using to demonstrate the plausibility of, you know, if not probability of, of many of those events actually having occurred. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, I, in one sense, we could say we could be right on eight or ten, eight out of, out of 12 or something like that, and we'd still be able to get pretty far. But we we actually tried to make a credible case for the mm-hmm. core authenticity of every one of those events. You do that, you're able to talk about what Jesus was about right. in a pretty significant way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, back to the, the 2019 book, in a chapter by, by Blomberg and CEO, I, I like their conclusion. They uh, just have a brief quote here from the it's page 66 in the book where they say, if evangelicals continue with the momentum they've exhibited in recent decades and succeed in throwing off the shackles with which the naysayers from right, left, and even center would chain them, the best days for historical Jesus research may be yet to come. Because that sounds rather optimistic, and so I, I almost assume... eschatological. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, I, you know, I assume that you agree with this assessment. So my question would be, you know, what makes you and and Craig and and the others, uh, Darlene, so hopeful about the future of evangelical Jesus research? 
Well, I think it's because one, you've got so many evangelicals participating in the conversation. I mean, uh, I went through a list. You know, I just gave a paper last week in New York at the Yale Club for a thing called the Borough mm-hmm. Mark Symposium. It was a gathering of Jews and Messianic Jews about the Jewishness of Jesus and and issues between the two groups. And my presentation was on the the recent history of discussion about Jesus coming out of a Jewish background. And when I read the list of people who have participated in what's been called the third quest and highlighted the books that are important to that quest, probably two thirds of that group would be um, would be evangelical in origin. So you've already mentioned Craig Evans, Ben Witherington, you know, uh, Craig right. Keener's written in that area. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there's just a whole host of people who've written in that area who come out of an evangelical background who've contributed to that discussion in one way or another. It is still pretty siloed between uh-huh. the people who speak from an evangelical point of view who tend to write their stuff and then everybody else with a not much attention being paid by the non-evangelicals and evangelicals. Evangelicals pay attention to the non-evangelicals all the time. Right. Um, but um, so that may say something about uh, the uh-huh. openness of the conversation. But at least the amount of data that's being put forward by evangelical writers from an evangelical perspective is actually pretty overwhelming in terms of the scope of Jesus' ministry that's covered by it. Klein Snodgrass has written on the parables. Uh-huh. You know, Craig's done a lot of work, particularly in the gospel, of, uh, in association with issues raised by the gospel of Mark. Yes. And Robert Webb's done John the Baptist about as thoroughly as anyone yeah. can do it. I've right. covered uh, the examination by the Jewish leadership. Right. Um, Brent Tinman has dealt with the issue of the triumphal entry. I uh-huh. mean, there's just a there's sure. just a lot of pieces to the puzzle, um, Blomberg's dealt with issues of purity and holiness. Uh-huh. And so, there's, and Witherington's dealt with the whole Christology that comes out of this. So there uh-huh. literally is almost no angle that an evangelical has not addressed in this area. And of course, there's always more detailed work that can be done in the specifics that touch on each one of these areas. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think that's very helpful for our listeners as well. You mentioned, you know, some of the works that they may want to avail themselves of. That, that more specialized work like yours on on, on the, you know, uh, accusation of blasphemy at the trial and so forth. I think that's. Uh, it's not even just, uh, you know, uh, cursory treatments. I mean, those are very technical, scholarly treatments that evangelicals have produced now. Uh, yeah, in that, fact, they've yeah. appeared in they've appeared in series that are, are as uh, high up the academic end, end as you can get. Key uh-huh. Events was originally in the Boot series, which most people won't know what that means. But uh-huh. and if I if I fill in the letters, they'll even be more confused because uh-huh. this Wissenschaftliches and Neuen Testament. I mean, it's a German series out of Cubingen, more Seebeck. You can't get you know, more vetted series than that is. Right. Um, and the same was true with my blasphemy monograph. Uh-huh. Uh, the work that uh, Robert Webb did on John the Baptist was a yeah. monograph through um, JSOT Press, the Sheffield Academic Press. You know, that's another well-vetted international series. So many of these works appeared in contexts in which you know, they're alongside works from anybody from, of any stripe. Yeah, you can't easily dismiss those works as, you know, scholarly lightweight uh, at all. 
Now, uh, Blomberg and Steele, in their chapter, they quoted right a minute ago, they talked about, you know, naysayers, you know, uh, I guess you mentioned some naysayers from the left, you might, who might, you know, dismiss uh, the, the, the work done by evangelicals, but what about naysayers from the right to, to play devil's advocate for a minute? What do you say to, to those uh, who, evangelicals were not sure that participating in the quest uh, for the historical Jesus and engaging in historical Jesus research is compatible with the high view of scripture. Uh, should we well, not recognize well, that, you know, historical research can get us only so far and there is an, an irreducible faith element that no account, no amount of historical research can bridge? Yeah, I, I mean, at one level, there are two things to say. On the one hand, they're right, that it is an inherent part of the historical Jesus effort to say you cannot trust scripture, that scripture does not have it right, that, that many people who go in, into the process are trying to sort out, you know, what is authentic and what isn't an inauthentic, inauthenticity means it isn't connected uh, to history. So from that standpoint, they're correct. But I think what they ignore is where we are. Where we are is in a society that's pluralistic, that it has um, many voices, including many religious voices around, people for whom the idea that the Bible is the inspired word of God doesn't count as a warrant or support for an idea. So if you take that away, the question becomes, how do you make the case for Jesus? Now, some people say, well, you shouldn't take that away. That's offensive to take that away. That's a wonderful position to have if you're a believer. But it's a terrible position to have if you're reaching out to someone who's not a believer. And so how do you have even begin to have a conversation that might persuade them to take a more serious look at Jesus, to take him historically seriously? If the one argument you can't use is, well, it's true simply because it's in the Bible. And uh, what underneath uh, that exists so that you can make the point. I like to make the point that one of the challenges that we have today in all our conversations about Jesus is since we've lost the Judeo-Christian net that operates around and operated around much of Western culture for a long time, that is gone. There's no uh, recovering it, the best I can tell. We only sort of had it anyway. But how do you how do you step into that space? And we used to be able to get away with it's true because it's in the Bible that that was a way you could make an argument. And because of that Judeo-Christian net, there was at least a respect and a regard for the Bible that would take something the Bible raised seriously. And you could make the argument in the warrant or the support for that argument that way. Now you have to do it in the reverse direction. Now you have to say it's in the Bible because it's true, which I actually think gets at the core of the way inspiration actually is uh -huh. supposed to work. Because the idea is the reason God inspires this and reveals this to us is because it's revealing something authentic about life or it's revealing something authentic about history. Uh -huh. And so uh, and you ought to be able on the basis of historical grounds, at least to make some kind of plausible case on that basis. So I can say to someone, look, I'm not arguing this simply because it's in the Bible. I'm arguing this because there are there are good, uh -huh. plausible reasons for thinking that this happened on the basis of warrants and supports that you would take seriously if I were talking about Aristotle, Plato, or someone else. Uh -huh. Yeah, I guess um, it's fascinating to hear you talk, because I know uh, you've been increasingly interested in cultural engagement, and I want to talk to you about that in just a moment. So in some ways, even historical Jesus research is in partly kind of an avenue of, of cultural engagement. Uh, 
But before we get there, just have one more question, and you I expect me to ask you a question about the Gospel of John. Um, <laughs> uh, as you know, one of the indis- that other gospel. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, one of the indisputable weaknesses of the quest for the historical Jesus is the almost total neglect of John's gospel, and I know you talked about that in in your book as well. One of the contributors, at least, does, and and of course, Paul Anderson and others have called for a fourth quest, in which uh, John is given a more, you know, pronounced positive attention alongside the synoptic gospels uh what do you think of his proposal how do you think it would change the landscape of historical jesus research any other thoughts you have on um well of course as you as you know the reason john has been an issue in the historical jesus discussion is because the feel of john is so much different than the than the other three synoptics Uh Uh, i i like to tell people that you know very basic way um the synoptic gospels tell the story of jesus from the earth up john tells it from heaven down and uh and so in the first three gospels you really watch it emerge working with categories that you're used to as to who jesus is and i actually argue alongside that and that's how everyone comes to jesus no one comes to Jesus where they get the swat of life at the beginning and they go, wah, 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 Jesus, the second person, the ontological trinity, wah, wah, wah. No one comes to Jesus that way. Uh, at, at some point, someone explains the absolute uniqueness of who Jesus is. And of course, the consummate example of that is the Gospel of John, because it begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with, and the word was God, this is CNN. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. right from the very first uh-huh. verse, you know where John is going. He's not hiding his cards at all. Uh-huh. And it's written very much from that perspective. I, I think there's a little more reflection reflected in the gospel. There are even places where the gospel says some of this we didn't realize until after Jesus was glorified. Uh-huh. So there's distinguishing between what the event was and how it was understood and perceived, those kinds of things. So those issues get into complicate the traditional way historical Jesus studies his work. Having said that, it's important that that gospel be included because in it are certain things that you don't get elsewhere. You know, we could debate the number, but people say anywhere from 80 to 88 percent of the gospel of John you don't have anywhere else. Right. So it's got a lot of unique material. One of the problems that you have in the historical Jesus study is you want to try and make an argument for corroborated material uh-huh. because so much of John is unique. It's hard to corroborate that, that right. its content. So that becomes an obstacle. But what Paul and the people who work with the four gospel have done is to uh-huh. try and set up some standards and ways to think about how to use that material positively in the discussion and to include that gospel as part of at least the potential evidence is important. So I don't think you can totally exclude it. You know, whether you call it a fourth quest or whether it's another element of the third quest, because the core of the third quest is understanding the Jewish background of Jesus and the Uh Jewish milieu of Jesus, which John is very much a part of, um, that, you know, that could be discussed. But I think the value of Uh thinking through how to take John seriously is an important part of the discussion. And it's also the important part of that book, which is why uh-huh. we gave him more space than any other author uh-huh. to write about the idea he was putting forward. Right. He's suggesting, for example, to tweak some of the criteria so John is not excluded a priori and, and so forth. And 
of course, he mentions there that there, there's a whole uh, section at SPL called uh, John, Jesus, and History, and several volumes they've produced and are going to produce some more, uh, which I think I've contributed to one of those myself, where they try to include uh, John in the discussion more than has been done in the past. So just I think that'd be helpful for our listeners to understand that that, that may be part of uh, the future of historical Jesus research, even though I'm sure there are some people who are going to predictably always uh, be resistant toward, toward that for the reason you mentioned at the beginning, that, that John just treats so differently from the very outset. But one of the beauties of what we were doing with key events is, is by the time you're done with just the synoptic contribution to the portrait of Jesus, you are very, very close in feel to what it is that John ultimately has to say about who he is. And so the distance, this, the chasm, if you will, that some people have placed between the synoptics and John mm -hmm. is not as great as people will sometimes argue perceive it to be. Now, it is true that the, the style in which Jesus is presented, the indirectness, if you will, or the cultural backdrop way of explaining, which is how the synoptics go versus the more direct way mm -hmm. that John handles it, it is a difference. But the landing place between where the synoptics eventually take you and where John takes you, um, you're in the same airport. That's very helpful. And obviously there's some some uh, common characters like Mary and Martha, and, uh, you know, that might be another, uh, you know, point of connecting the, the Gospels. It's Sometimes people might exaggerate the differences, and, and you know, there are obvious differences, but there's some some common ground as well. Uh, now, moving to that other topic that I alluded to briefly, as we, you know, uh, get close to wrapping up our conversation with you, Daryl, in recent years, I think you've increasingly turned to apologetics more overtly and, and cultural engagement. Um, as you know, you and I have partnered in, in a couple of ways uh, with Truth Matters, Truth in the Culture of Doubt, uh, not to mention the apologetics commentary on the New Testament, to which you and I both contributed. Uh, why this turn to cultural engagement, if it was a turn, uh, and, and how has this shift manifested itself in, in you know, the way you, you spend your days and, and in your work at Dallas Seminary and, and beyond? Well, because, you know, when you look at the New Testament, you ask what your association with Jesus is supposed to generate. It's supposed to generate two fronts. There's the building up of the saints on the one hand, and there's the Great Commission on the other. And so I don't think you can do good, balanced New Testament work without being engaged in one way or another in extensions of what the Great Commission represents. And that's to go and make disciples, which means spending a lot of time interacting with people who aren't inside the church, but whom you're trying to reach with the message of the gospel and then thinking through how do you reach someone whose thinking is very different than your own? How do you have those conversations? What do you engage on? What drives them to be who they are currently? And is there a way to speak into that? All those issues um, come to the fore. And, and the challenge has become, again, talking back to the loss of the Judeo-Christian net, the challenge has become that because we are a much more global culture, actually, we're a much more global set of cultures, plural, multiple layers, multiple religions, multiple perspectives, all of that, you know, what some people call postmodern or post-Christian, you can take your choice. The um, what, it, what it takes to connect the variety that you're dealing with 
is much more expansive than when you didn't have that level of communication and you could operate in the context of some cultural differences, but there are usually only one, two, maybe three or four options. Well, we've got multiple options. And I like to say the world is both bigger and smaller simultaneously. There are more people on the one hand, but we are in tighter connection with one another and much more aware of one another than we used to be. And that produces all kinds of dynamics that someone in the church needs to be sensitive about. And so we give ourselves to trying to sort through all that as much as we can. Well, just uh, one final question before we wrap up um, on that note. Maybe you can share a little bit more about your current work with cultural engagement and maybe some a word on your current and future projects. Yeah, um, I'm in the process of uh, beginning to write for a series for Christianity Today. I've, I've don't know if we've settled on the final name yet, maybe called Spaces and Places, but um, I've got a series of essays that deal with um, 900 word essays is all, um, it's amazing what you can do in 900 words when you try. Mm -hmm. And anyway, um, uh, in a series that will appear online, uh, the first couple are in and there's some, I already have a list of certain topics that I want to go, but that's supposed to have a life of its own. And then I put everything together in an initial effort to create a theology of cultural engagement in a work that's going to be out in the spring called Cultural Intelligence. And uh, 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 we're still, I think, sorting out uh, aspects of the subtitle, but we are, it's designed to give a theology of cultural engagement to look at specific passages and wrestle uh, with with what that represents, that kind of thing, and uh, and to go through how the Bible handles cultural engagement. One of the themes is is that as we become less a part of the center of the culture, we're actually going back to the time where the early church was, where it had no social and political power. Mm-hmm. How were they able to do it successfully and negotiate that? So I have a section that's called Back to the Future. Uh, but the book is called Cultural Intelligence, Living for God in a Diverse and Pluralistic World. And, uh, and and we're walking into the challenge of what it means to to live in a in a space and in in a context in which there are so many voices coming in in so many different directions and from so many different cultures all at once. Carol, that sounds very exciting, and uh, I'm genuinely grateful for your heart in all of this, for your you know love for the lost, especially. Love also for the Jewish people and, uh, and even transcending, you know, sometimes the the confines of just academia and to to reach out to real people to to reduce the jargon and to just uh, you know just prayerfully uh, set forth a uh, defense of the gospel, especially as you mentioned in a world that's that's rapidly changing and in many ways. Sadly, not for the better, but um, but we, uh, in light of uh, uh, Jesus' return, we need to do everything we can. Uh, yeah, we especially Jesus, need to do yeah. it. In, we especially need to do it in a context in which things, at least in America, are so totally polarized mm-hmm. that the church is risking putting itself in a position where it is so wedded to certain issues that its ability to do its evangelism is being undercut in terms of the message and the credibility because people think that what believers stand for is, is strictly either political or ideological. And that, 
that's an unfortunate move. Um, not that the, some of those things aren't worthy of defense, they are, but the prioritization of them is a problem. And then the, the tone that we bring yeah. to those discussions is also an issue. So the book that comes out in September is designed to suggest that maybe we're having problems in this area because we've gotten kind of a little out of whack biblically and to try and realign us biblically to the right set of priorities. Well, I appreciate the tone. I agree with you. That's just so important. And and sometimes the tone has been unhelpful, antagonistic, even shrill at places. So uh, I'm convinced that uh, you're going to make a vital contribution even to the, you know, to get uh, believers uh, who care for the lost to reconsider, uh, you know, whether or not the, the tone they're using, including social media, is is really going to commend Christianity to Jesus. That's what you would hope, but I'm not sure sometimes the way we say what we say, you know, you can be right, and if you do it in the wrong tone, you're wrong. Mm. And so that's the that's the problem that I think, one of the problems that we're facing, and I'm trying to get people to think through, um, one, what the nature of the real spiritual battle is and and the fact that it is a spiritual battle, mm -hmm. and then what that means for the credibility of our faith to actually reflect our faith through and through, not just by what we say and what we believe, but how we say it. Well, Dr. Bach, we're very grateful for your work, so we actually look forward to that future publication and uh, want to encourage our listeners to tune into your podcast. And uh, thank you again so, uh, for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.